21 people were murdered by a sadistic gunman in Evaldi, Texas. Today, we're gonna look at that elementary school shooting, but more importantly, we're gonna go beyond policies and arguing back and forth and political answers. We're gonna go to something way more potent. If you believe that there's an opportunity here for us to be honest about the evil that we're seeing in society and then to get to some real substantive answers, then you're gonna love the things we talk about today on Indie Thinker. Hey guys, thanks so much for watching the show. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Today, we're going to be doing what we try to do on every show. We're gonna be bridging the gap between faith and reason, so I'm gonna provide some logical, rational arguments about gun ownership and some things that we can do to stop things like what happened in Ovalde, Texas, uh, stop those things from happening in the future. But then I'm also gonna provide, a, I think, a potent faith answer to to what's going on in our nation so that we can actually provide real answers to real evil because this is a great opportunity for us to, to look at what's going on in society. And with that in mind, I've been thinking about a Bible story. So we'll get to the, to the rational kind of stuff in a moment, but I think you'll also agree with this from a rational perspective. I've been thinking about that story about the prophet Elijah who meets with the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar, Elijah is a prophet, which means he just boldly declares the word of God, but then also, too, has a supernatural ability um, in some ways to, to say what's going to happen in the future because God has told him. And so, in other words, he's just somebody who has been told things by God, who then therefore has the responsibility to go, to go and tell that to other people. And so Elijah comes up to the mountain and it's there where Elijah gathers the people of Israel together and he says, hey, you've been worshiping false gods for far too long. It's, it's enough of this back and forth of Israel's history between worshiping God and then worshiping these false gods. It's time you made a decision. It's time to decide today who you will serve. And it's crickets. Nobody in the audience says anything. So how would you like that for, for one of your Sunday morning messages? And so he says this and, and then he says, all right, fine. You guys don't want to say anything, so let's do this. Let's solve this problem once and for all. You, you priests, you false prophets of Baal, you come up on the mountain and you pray to your false god and we'll see if he answers. And then I will pray to my god and we'll see if he answers. And so what follows is a contest of sorts where the prophets of Baal go out and they start praying to their false god. And of course, he doesn't answer because he doesn't exist. Um, and then they get desperate because they're looking for, for this false god that doesn't exist. And they begin cutting themselves and they begin screaming at the top of their lungs in the hopes that this god will finally answer them. But of course, nothing comes. And then finally, Elijah, just by himself, steps up. He prays to, uh, to the one true god. He prays to Jehovah and then God answers. And so I, I tell you this story because... I think there's some interesting parallels to what's happening in society today. We find that there are many, many people who are desperate for meaning and who are desperate to find that their lives really matter and they're looking for something more, as it were. And so they're resorting to all kinds of answers and all kinds of things to try to find that, that meaning and that, that reason for their existence. And so some of them are screaming at the top of their lungs and joining protests and joining um, any number of marches and, and screaming at people in the hopes that they will find that meaning. 
and that their meaning will come from that kind of activism. And then we have people literally cutting themselves. I think about the phenomenon in the 90s, maybe the early 2000s of people literally cutting themselves because they themselves said, I, I wanna feel like I'm alive. And so that red blood reminds me that I'm alive and that pain reminds me that I'm alive. So there's this emptiness in the soul and people are resorting to cutting themselves. And then I also think about the modern day trans lobby where not only are people trying to, you know, say that they feel something and they're trying to honor that feeling, by cutting on themselves, but then also too, they're saying there's this emptiness, there's this issue, there's these emotional things going on in my life, and I think that cutting myself will solve that, that problem. And so people are in our modern day resorting to cutting themselves as well, all as a result of trying to believe that there's something more to this, this life. And I can't help but think about this in response to the multiple shootings that we've seen recently. Are these not maybe, yes, mental illness, and but a part of that, the mental illness of telling people that there is no purpose in this life beyond you doing you and you being you and you trying to discover who your authentic self is, that there is no solvent for the evil of the human heart. Therefore, you are resolved to go try to figure it out on your own. And ultimately, that is a suicidal proposition. Well, we'll dig, on to, dig into what's going on in society today in a, in a little bit deeper and more focused way, specifically with the Evalde shooting. But before we do that, I wanna make sure that you guys know that this show is sponsored by our great friends over at Element Funding and the Kevin Blair team. So you need to go to kevinblairteam.com today if you have any mortgage needs. You need to do that not only because you will get a great rate and you will get great customer service, but because this is a great company. We wouldn't support, even at this early stage in the game for this podcast, we would not support a company if it didn't support the right kind of values and it didn't stand up for the right kind of things. So their sponsorship of this show should be enough to show you that, that Kevin Blair and those guys over at Element Funding are a phenomenal, phenomenal company who care about the right things. So if you have any mortgage needs, like I said, please go over to kevinblairteam.com today. And then when you do so, let them know that Indie Thinker sent you. Malcolm Muggridge is a sort of hero of mine. He's a Christian theologian, ethicist, journalist, very widely reputed journalist, and um, a, a philosopher of sorts. Malcolm Muggridge tells this story about kind of his young adult life before he became a Christian. He was a wild man and kind of just did whatever his passions led him to do. And so one time while vacationing in India, he was out bathing in a body of water. Off in the far, far distance, he saw a silhouette of a woman uh, come into the water. Now, he couldn't see her very well, but the one thing he could notice based upon her silhouette is that she was not wearing any clothes. And so he thought to himself for a moment, as the wild young man that he was, only living for his passions, that he would go to the woman and proposition her for sex. And so he swims as ferociously as he possibly can to get up to the woman, goes under the water, and then thinks he'll emerge right in front of her and proposition her there. And as he does so, he emerges from the water, wipes the water from his eyes. The woman is terrified. She reels back in horror and she covers herself. But she doesn't cover herself just because she's naked. She covers herself because of what Malcolm Muggridge notices now that he's close enough to see it. The woman is horribly eaten up with leprosy. Her lips are gone. Her eye sockets have been eaten away, leaving only just her, her eyeballs mostly. And then her elbows and other parts of her body have been eaten up by this, by this flesh-eating virus on her, on her skin. Now, Malcolm Muggridge also is horrified. He 
peels back in horror at the sight of the woman. And the first thought that comes to his mind is, this is a hideously ugly woman. But it doesn't take long for that sentiment to change. And he thinks about himself and he thinks, what a hideously ugly soul that would do this to this woman, that would, that would try to perpetrate this evil scheme upon this woman and take advantage of her in this water and then expose her like this and make her feel this way. He walks away from that incident and that is one of the many things that eventually causes him to realize that there must be a potent cure for the evil inside of the human soul, for the, for the evil that we all experience. Because we can look at the evil out there, but we must come up with an explanation or an answer for the evil in here. So today what I want to do on the show is, is something a little bit different. I want, to, I want to take the opportunity, while we have it, to stare evil in the face. And I want us to be honest about it. I want us to go beyond the impotent political haymaking and the back and forth at a, at, an, at a time of an election year. And I want us to get serious about potent answers to things like what we saw in Ivaldi. So let's talk quickly about what happened in Ivaldi. So there was a murderous young man whom I will not name. I will not give him the benefit of his name. I will just call him a murderer from here on out. And that murderer took an AR-15 that he had purchased legally from a licensed federal gun dealership. Uh, and, and he took that AR-15, he initially shot his grandmother in the face. And then he took a truck, went away, and then he drove up to a funeral home and he crashed in a ditch there. Um, he originally thought that he would shoot up that funeral home, so he emerges from his car, and a couple of men from the funeral home come to check on the guy to see if he's okay. He begins firing in their direction. They quickly run away. I think another guy was also there. We'll get to him in just a moment. Uh, he also runs the opposite direction as this young man begins to open fire on them. Instead of going for the funeral home, he then scales a fence, jumps over that fence, and he goes into an elementary school. He takes what then is about 10 minutes there in the yard of the elementary school with an AR-15 in hand, and then he finds eventually an open door. And he goes through that open door, begins opening fire into classrooms, and he will shoot 19 children and two adults and shoot many more, but 19 children will die and two adults will die. The casual, total casualties right now at 21. And we believe that that probably will be uh, the sum total here of those who died in, in this horrible mass shooting. He then barricades himself in a classroom and then the police 40 minutes later will eventually breach the building, go into that classroom and, uh, and shoot that murderous individual dead. Now, there's some other details to the story, but essentially that is what took place. Now, before I get into kind of some solutions and maybe even a kind of more detailed look at a couple of things that took place at, in that shooting, what I, what I want to do is I want to do this because I'm a Christian and I try to provide Christian answers on this show, but, but also rational Christian answers to show that even if you're not a Christian, that Christianity sometimes has a bad rap in the past, but also can provide thoughtful, meaningful, critical answers at an important time just like this one. But there's a lot of people who would step back and say, well, read. You know, the answer to this is really clear. What we need to do is we need to just take away guns from people, right? That this is obviously the Christian answer, right? Well, there is this unsaid and maybe unspoken belief that pacifism is a central tenant of Christianity. And that's certainly not true. So pacifism is just the idea that we do peace at all costs. 
And then people will quote things like Isaiah 2.4, and they'll say, you know, Isaiah tells us to take our swords and to beat them into plowshares and to till the land and not to be worried about fighting other people. Well, the problem with that is other verses in the Bible that deserve a little bit more nuance than just a tertiary reading because Joel 3.10 will say the literal exact opposite. And it will tell us to take our plowshares and to beat them into swords. The, the difference here is this, is that Isaiah is talking about a time when uh, the, the Jewish people should not fight incoming forces, that they should take the punishment of God like, like men and, and not fight back against it. Joel, on the other hand, is saying you should fight back against it. And then you think about things like, oh yeah, well, what about Jesus when he says, turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. And if somebody asks for something of you, you give it to them. And, and all of these, these things. And it even says, you know, love your enemy. And, and they think that this serves as a perfect explanation for why Christians should not own guns. I'll give you something a little bit deeper about this. Jesus will send his disciples out originally, and he'll say, don't take any knives or anything with you. And then before he leaves this earth, he will tell his disciples once again when he's sending them out to take a knife. Um, and Peter will say, well, I've got two. And he'll say, okay, good enough. That's enough. We, that's... That's all you need. So at one point in time, he says, don't use them. And then another point in time, he says, take them with you. So all of that to say this is, is Christianity a religion of pacifism? And so the answer is unequivocally and unilaterally, no. Christianity is not a religion of pacifism. And so here's where I'll make a higher good argument. Yes, we are to love our enemies. Yes, we are to care for people in a way that is radically different than the way the world cares about people. I think about Jim Elliott and him going into a remote interior region when he's on a mission trip uh, and he's engaging a tribe of, of indigenous people who have never experienced, you know, world outside of their, the world outside of their tribe. And this is really well related in a movie called The End of the Spear. Great movie, fantastic. I encourage you to watch it. And, and in that movie, um, you see Jim Elliott and fellow missionaries go into this, this place where they're engaging these Indians to minister to them and to tell them about Jesus. But these indigenous people, as it were, are, uh, are a murderous tribe. They, they believe that the most powerful tribe are the ones who can kill the most people with their spears. That's why it's called End of the Spear. And Jim Elliott was even quoted as saying, those who give up what they cannot keep to gain what they can never lose are not fools. And so they go into this tribe and they refuse to take any guns with them because they don't want to do anything rash and shoot these guys because they say, we know what will happen to us if we die. But we also know what will happen to them if they die. So we don't want to kill them. And of course, what happens is all of these missionaries are, are impaled with spears and killed. Now, this is a, a good story that ends on a high note because the women, the, the wives of these men will go back and minister to the same tribe that killed the, their husbands and they will win those, that tribe to Christ. But does that mean, therefore, that we should never take up arms? Well, I have a scenario for you. So let's just say a murderous individual comes and is pointing a gun at a baby. And then let's say you are a responsible gun owner. Now, you are pointing a gun at this person who is pointing a gun at the baby. When we say turn the other cheek, does that mean that we should allow this man to kill that baby and then also give him another baby to kill so that we don't end up causing him any harm? Well, of course, that would be ridiculous. We know that there is a higher good argument here that yes, it is a high good to love our enemies and those who would do evil things. It is a good to do that. 
but there is a higher good. And the higher good in this moment is to protect an innocent baby. And so our higher good or our higher morality demands that we think in a nuanced fashion beyond just saying, no, God tells us to love our enemies. No, our higher good here demands that we protect that innocent child from that murderous human being. And so it is clear based upon scripture, and based upon reason, that pacifism is an unworkable solution that doesn't find its place clearly rooted in scripture. We have a higher good moral argument to, I think, be responsible gun owners in the case of situations like this. And I'll show you a clip of that right here so that it can kind of back up what I'm saying. Came out with an automatic weapon, shot at least twice, maybe three times at them. And then that's when he spotted me and boy, I, I mean, I was, already in motion to run and that's when he bam bam but it's the aftermath that has vargas feeling guilty i carry a pistol in my truck i took it out two days ago and if i would have had it there i could i could have i could have laid him down if that individual had had a gun and he had taken care of the situation right then and there right now we would not be mourning the death of these 19 children and these two adults that were killed in uvalde texas so let's now talk just for a brief moment, if we're going to say responsible gun ownership it can be a good thing. So what solutions are being proposed? Well, first of all, we'll get to Steve Kerr speaking about this bill in just a moment, but many are talking about a HR 8, a background check bill, which means anybody, regardless of who you are, under any circumstance, if you're gonna have a gun, you have to first go through a background check and you need to see if there's any history of violence or mental illness before you can ever own a gun. Now, I'm actually in favor of this, but I do gotta make mention of this, that this would not have helped in the Uvalde shooting case because this individual got his gun from a licensed gun owner, a federally licensed gun owner, which means he had to go through a background check in order to get his gun. This individual did not have a criminal history and he had no history to speak of other than anecdotal, uh, instances that are now coming to us after the fact, but nothing in record uh, of mental health issues. And therefore, this guy did pass a background check in order to get his gun. So it wouldn't have helped us, at least in this situation. Is it a good thing? Sure. But, but is it a potent answer? To that, I would say no. And then the other thing we're talking about is banning AR... 15s, assault rifles, which by the way, is a name that was given to these things. They're not actually called assault rifles. They're just called rifles. Um, and then we hear our president come on and say things like, uh, what are you trying to do? Kill, kill deers with bulletproof vests? Ban on assault weapons and high capacity magazines. No one needs to have a weapon that can fire over 30, 40, 50, even up to 100 rounds. Unless you think the deer are wearing Kevlar vests or something. And that's why you need an AR-15, which just clearly shows that this man and so many of the people talking about these things have no understanding at all about what an AR-15 is. It's, it's, they don't just like automatically come with armor piercing rounds and whatnot. Yes, they are high, high capacity, uh, potentially high capacity uh, firearms. And while I would say that there needs to be perhaps some restrictions on those and the capacity with which they can uh, they can hold. I think there's an argument for that. The one thing I would say yet again is that this is not a solution to end things like what happened in Evaldi, Texas. That's, that's the key here. This is merely a solution that would slow shooters down and maybe not even all that much because assault rifles, I, the way the left talks about assault rifles makes you think that it's Rambo with a, two machine guns in his hands just mowing people down. An assault rifle, an AR-15, 
is not an automatic weapon. It doesn't continue, you have to pull a trigger and for every trigger pull comes one single bullet. So it's just like a handgun um, with, with other modification potentials. All right, so I, I think we just need to be honest about this. And we also need to be honest about it in this way, is that assault weapons were banned in the 90s. And I'm gonna show you a clip right now by the Washington Post that went into uh, some, some data as to whether or not that assault weapons ban in the 90s actually did anything. So I think this is super eye-opening for us. So here's that. So the law had significant loopholes. Did it work? Did it change crime? Well, uh, for the most part, criminologists who have said this think it didn't very much, and there's a reason for that, is that the assault weapons that Congress uh, looked at and banned only take place in a small number of gun crimes to begin with. M most crimes are committed with guns that weren't banned, even exactly. by the assault weapons yeah. ban. There is one exception where there's at least suggestive evidence in that the number of casualties from mass shootings did seem to go down when the ban was in effect. Uh, but again, this was 10 years, 1994 to 2004, and these are fairly rare events, so it's very hard to tell whether that was just a blip or whether it was actually effect of uh, this assault weapons ban. So if the ban had big loopholes mm -hmm. and it didn't seem to significantly change gun violence, what's the argument for reinstating it? So because most gun violence is done with handguns, there was no substantial evidence that banning assault rifles actually did anything. And again, at the end of that clip, you'll see that he said assault weapons uh, being used in school shootings and in mass shootings went down, but that's also because we don't have a whole lot of mass shootings in the United States, so we cannot clearly trace the assault weapons ban back to whether or not that accounted for that decrease in that amount of time. Now, the other thing you'll hear very, very often especially from those on the left, is that why is America the one place that really deals with these mass shootings and it doesn't happen anywhere else in the world? And then you'll also hear accompanied along with that statistics that, that say that there are more guns than adults in the United States and more guns than people in the United States. Well, according to the McIver Institute, the five deadliest mass shootings in world history all took place outside of the U.S., so did eight of the 10 deadliest, so did 33 of the 50 deadliest mass shootings in world history. What is also forgotten in this debate is that in 2016, the Crime Research Prevention Center found that when adjusted for population, the U.S. actually ranked 12th in mass shootings per capita from 2009 to 2015. And the U.S. actually ranked 83rd in the world in murders per capita while 5.35 murders per 100,000 residents is well below the world average of 7.03. We certainly have too many, and one is too many, and certainly we can talk about what we should do to solve this issue, but as you can see from this map, that we do not have more mass shootings when you take into account population size in America than other countries of the world. So when people come along and say, well, this is not happening anywhere else, why is it only happening in America? They are not being honest or they are just misinformed because that's not really what's happening. But, but here's the whole point, is that there's so much talk right now that the question is, is are we really interested in substantive answers? Are we really interested in solutions? Because like I said before, merely doing background checks won't help um, in, in, in all cases. Will it help in some? Sure, okay, so let's, let's do it, fine. But, but, it's, but it's not a substantive answer. It's not a potent answer. And then we talk about restricting AR-15s and making sure that at least you have to be 21 if, you can, if you're gonna own an AR-15. 
Is that really gonna do anything other than slow shooters down? Could that save lives? Yes, potentially, but it wouldn't have in, in this situation at Ivaldi. And so I'm not saying we shouldn't have the conversation. I'm just saying we need to have the potent conversation and let that be the most important thing. And so let me offer just a couple of solutions. One, we need well-funded and trained police. So any party that is interested in not funding the police, no names uh, given at this point in time, should not be a party that you should be interested in voting for. We need well-funded and well-trained police. As you heard me already allude to, but also as I will show you right now up on the screen, you will see a timeline of how long it actually took the police to go into the building and actually stop this individual from committing his crimes or to offer assistance to those who had been shot. There's, there's no telling how many lives could have been saved if the police had gone in like they were supposed to but they took 40 minutes. At 11.30, a teacher calls 911 to report the car being crashed and a man with a gun. Three minutes later, Ramos is in the school and begins shooting. He shoots 100 rounds. And then it isn't until 12.50 that the police finally breach the building and shoot this murderous guy. So it's clear that we need well-funded and well-trained police in order to go in and do something about this. I'm fully in support of the police and in support of those who lay down their life every single day, but this is clearly a hack job that could have been alleviated if we were serious about funding the police rather than defunding the police. Now, the second thing is this, is that we need one entry point and multiple uh, points of exit. That one entry point should be continuously 100% guarded by administration at the very least. When I go to the school where my boys go to school, when I go pick them up or do anything, I cannot enter the building without buzzing first and them recognizing who I am and seeing that I don't have a gun on my person. So there should be only one singular point where a person can come in and that point should be locked and then always under surveillance while there are kids in the building. And then there should be multiple places of exit that once the door is shut behind you, you, uh, you can't get back in them. Now, to be honest, that wouldn't have helped here because a teacher propped open the door to go get her phone in the car, came back and then left that door open. That's what we're being told. And then, and then one more thing. And this is probably the most important kind of rational solution that we need to be talking about in the midst of all of the things that are going on left and right, is that we need armed guards at every school across America. We just sent 40 billion to the Ukraine. Now surely we can find a way with as many you know, teachers unions as there are in the United States to find a way to drum up the money that is necessary to make sure that we have an armed guard always on the premises of a school during school hours and any time there are kids present, surely we can find a way to drum up the money to try to make sure that we can pay these people to go in there and be there as a presence to deter any of this stuff from happening. It's interesting to me that we're not talking about any of these things right now, which is why I wanted to do this podcast specifically about this issue today. But there is one more reason that I wanted to do this podcast about this issue is because we're also not talking about the spiritual component here, the, 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 the human heart of the thing. We're not dealing with the man, we're dealing with the methods and we're, we're dealing with the madness of what he did, the aftermath of it, but we're not dealing with the individual. And so one of the things that we always hear, and I'm gonna show you a clip of that in a moment, is that instead of moments of silence and instead of praying for people, what we need to do is we need action. 
Why are we so quick to push away a spiritual component that might actually be the solution for what's going on in our society? But you can hear Steve Kerr say this very same thing in the midst of a legitimate rant about what just took place at Evol in Evaldi. Um, since we left shoot around, 14 children were killed 400 miles from here. And a, and a teacher. And in the last 10 days, we've had elderly black people killed in a supermarket in Buffalo. We've had Asian churchgoers killed in Southern California. And now we have children murdered at school. When are we going to do something? I'm tired. I'm, I'm so tired of getting up here and offering condolences to, to the devastated families that are out there. I'm so tired of the, excuse me, I'm sorry. I'm tired of the moments of silence. Enough. There's 50 senators right now who refuse to vote on H.R. 8, which is a background check rule that the House passed a couple years ago. It's been sitting there for two years. And there's a reason they won't vote on it, to hold on to power. I want to just take a moment to say this, that I almost, I disagree with Steve Kerr on almost everything. If we were to talk about anything, um, <laughs> ranging from flowers to uh, family, we would probably wholly disagree on, on all of it. Um, but, I, but I understand his emotions here. I understand his frustration. And you need to know that his father was a victim of gun violence. And this is why Steve Kerr is so passionate about this, this very subject. Um, but as I already stated before, H.R., Eight, the bill that supposes uh, imposes background checks would not have helped in this situation. It wouldn't have solved what took place in Evaldi. Um, but furthermore, I think we need to be not so quick about pushing aside religious answers, faith, the faith component here, the moments of silence and the prayers for the lost loved ones. We shouldn't be so quick to push that away. But this is exactly what Chuck Schumer just did, the majority leader in the Senate. Now, he did this right before he did something pretty interesting. So I think it's worth noting here. Chuck Schumer said that Republicans are only interested in offering prayers rather than common sense laws. Now, he said this right on the right preceding him actually refusing to hear a bill proposed by Rick Scott that was sponsored by the Parkland survivor families and named after two kids who were killed in the Parkland shooting. This is a, a bill that Rick Scott put in that would kind of give more widespread kind of data about what's going on with background checks and put a, and clearing houses for, for firearms. It, it has a lot to the bill, but essentially this would help the situation. But Chuck Schumer refused to even hear the bill saying that it would put more guns on the street, which is a total and patent lie. Why would Chuck Schumer lie about this? Well, because this is an opportunity to make political hay. And this is why I offer spiritual encouragement and spiritual advice at this time, because we're in the midst of an, an, an election season. And we're going to be in two years coming upon an election year where we're going to vote for the president. And right now the Democrats are scrambling because of how much Joe Biden has just botched and how bad things are now that the Democrats are in, in charge of everything. And, and so we need to be very, very attuned to the fact that right now, you may say the same thing about Democrat, or Republicans, but Democrats are not interested in actually helping the situation. Rather, Chuck Schumer wants to push aside prayers and push aside um, 
moments of silence for those who are suffering right now in the face of evil, that just pushes us closer to the political. And it may push us closer to politicization. Listen, I know we don't all agree about faith and religion and spirituality. And those topics can be incredibly emotional. But I'm just going to tell you this. When we are desperate and searching for answers, some of that is pushed to the side. And what we may find is that we start looking in places where we didn't before for the answers that we weren't finding before in the political. We might actually find potent answers that can really deal with the human heart because as always, the heart of the matter is the human heart and not the political. I'll just put it this way. When Kerr tells us to do that, I think he's missing something vital right here. I think we need to be practical and I think we need to come up with solutions. But those solutions need to include the spiritual. So before I get there, I want to show you a clip by Marcellus Wiley who will also echo this point that we cannot, in the midst of everything that we're talking about right now, miss the man, miss the individual in the midst of talking about shooters, mass shooters, and what's going on in our world. So here's him talking a little bit, giving a response to Steve Kerr, but more broadly talking about mass shooters and what we need to focus on at this time. Ready? Man made the machine, right? And man makes the machine destroy. So what's the real problem here in terms of solution? Man. A lot of times we get into these situations and we say, we want change. And then that change has to come in one or two forms. You got to change the man or you got to change the machine in terms of access. It's very difficult, if not impossible, to change the machine in terms of access. Background checks, I hear it all the time. I want to remind people that of all the murderers, 33% of them had no previous record. So you're going to eliminate it. Perfect is the enemy of good. I get it. It's not going to be a perfect solution. It's going to be a better solution, but you want to eliminate it. We start to go all the way down the course of actions in terms of how we can bring this problem to a halt. And we never talk about how we go and address the biggest problem which is man. So look, so many of the solution proposed right now do not take into account either mental health or the individual in the shooting. Shouldn't there be some acknowledgement of the fact that we're living in an age where these things are happening more and more and more? Could it be that the secularism of our time has convinced a generation that there is no God and therefore no solution to the evil that you are finding in your own heart? And this is why I'm actually really concerned about this shooting and the conversations around it. When we strip religion away from public life, we are in essence telling people that there are no viable solutions to the wickedness all of us know exists down deep in all of our hearts. So we even push this shooter to the side. If we're gonna be honest about it, that there's, there's enough for all of us to be concerned of for each and every one of our own hearts. So this is what we're told, just ignore your soul's emptiness and it'll go away magically. In doing this, we creep ever closer to the secularism that will, I think, be our downfall. And did we think there would be no consequences to secularism, even if you're not a religious-minded person? We have to acknowledge that there may be some repercussions in the West as we move increasingly and rapidly so into secularism and away from God. And so you say, well, Reed, how are we doing that? Sure, some 75% of Americans claim to be Christians, but we know that's not a real number. Here's a number that should suffice to help us understand that we are, are becoming a secular American West. So a poll was just released and revealed that only 37% of Christian pastors polled there in that poll have a biblical worldview. Now, 
I know, you can say what you want to about polls, but I think we would all agree that that 75% number is probably way, way smaller. We have far fewer Christians in America than, than, than that number suggests. Practicing actual Bible-believing Christians. Anybody can call themselves that, but are they? So if I'm right about this shift, then we have to answer for why nothing has changed with gun laws in, let's say, the last 60 years, but why we are seeing more and more violations of guns and more mass shootings. Christianity was a stabilizing, anchoring force for good in our society. It was a founding principle of our nation. And did we think we could move away from it and there wouldn't be anything that would happen as a result? Just to learn a little bit from history, the French Revolution, which was a bloody mess and many innocents died, was preceded by this kind of religious animosity. Even Denis Diderot, who was the chief editor of the encyclopedia and a philosopher during the French Revolution, he said, the French will never truly be free until the last king is strangled by the guts of the last priest. Boy, that sounds awfully violent, doesn't it? Well, we're starting to see more and more of that creep up in our time. This insane hatred toward religion and it's becoming a building block for our modern-day secularism as it has been for the French's secularism. And it created a blood-soaked French Revolution, like I said, where many innocent people died. Because the hatred of religion may also, in a roundabout way, be a hatred toward self and an adoption of bloodlust. So let me just put, put it in these words. It's a little scary that progressives today would be so dedicated to the agenda of pushing away from religion at a time where we need it the most. At a time where perhaps it can provide some of the most substantive and important answers to what's going on in the human heart and why evil even exists in the first place. If we think we can legislate evil out of existence, we've got another thing coming. In the Christian worldview, there is an answer to heresy. It's orthodoxy. And this simply means this, that the remedy for bad thinking is good thinking. That's why this podcast exists. I may not go out of my way to prescribe specific things because I believe that that's your responsibility. But I know this, before we can have right action, we have, must have right thinking. And what will truly deal with the, the inner thinking, the inner thought life, the soul, if you will, of humanity, except Christianity. And so here's some thoughts I have on the spiritual side of things that will provide practical solutions that take into account that, that spiritual side of things, that faith side of things. We need nonprofits and churches to help raise good families. We're seeing a parent crisis in America, not so much a gun crisis. We need mentors and schools who will take on fatherless boys and help them become men. We need comparative religion and ethics taught in high school again as a required course where maybe we don't have the resources in the school, but we can schedule priests and pastors and clergy and different faiths to come in. So I'm not even just being Christian here. I'm trying to be fair across the board. We invite them all to come in and they share about their faith. They share what they think about ethical principles and they share about what they think about evil and then what the remedy for that evil is. I'm so confident that Christianity is the answer in the midst of all that's going on and has always been in our world that if you do that kind of comparative religion, you will see that Christianity will stand among all of the religions of the world as a brilliant and bright answer, a remedy as it were, to the malady of the human heart. And besides, we need to realize that, that religion is a part of history. 
It is a part of our world and we cannot deny it by pushing it to the side and then claiming illegitimately separation of church and state. It's a vital aspect of our world and pretending it doesn't exist, I think will harm each and every one of us. So we should have these classes available where kids can ask questions and, and ask difficult questions, ask all of the, the kind of hard questions that they have about religion. Why does God allow evil? And how come you believe hell exists? And what about people who don't know about God or Christianity and they've never heard about it? Are they, are they also gonna be in punishment in the afterlife? All of these questions that these kids have that they don't get answered now because we've become fully secular in our public education system. And I'm not even adopting this idea that we need to put Bibles back in school and prayers back in school. Like nobody ever told a kid that they couldn't do that, you know, independently and freely. So, so yeah, do it kids. But more importantly, let's have a comparative religion class where we can bring the conversation of faith in the intersection of ethics and then bring that into the classroom. And like I said, you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to hire teachers that are experts on this stuff. Just zoom in or video conference in people who are experts on the subject so that these kids can at least interact with these ideas instead of making them forbidden for all people for the rest of, rest of time. I think it's silly then that we wonder why people don't believe that there are answers to the deep, dark secrets of our own heart. We need to quit pretending like God doesn't exist or that our actions don't have eternal consequences. Only then will we start to see this number dip. Now, you may say to yourself, well, Reed, what about mental health? What about those, Reed, who, who don't just have existential crises? Well, I'm, I'm going to suggest to you that I think this solves both of those things. I think that this is the cure for mental health. I believe it is the cure for our own spiritual health, is to reconsider and reinvestigate the claims, specifically of Christianity, but the claims of faith in the existence of God and in the process of doing so, we may just wonder at the fact that people once again have hope in this world, that people once again find meaning and purpose beyond the humdrum of everyday life. People go beyond just collecting a paycheck and realize that there's more to this life than, than just the materialism that this world has to offer in a naturalist perspective. There's more than just mere psychology and mere policies and more political, mere political positioning, that there is actually an answer, a soul-satisfying answer, to the, to the needs that each and every one of us have down deep in our heart. So in my mind, this is the answer to mental health. Sure, let's talk about medicines, let's talk about uh, counseling, let's talk about trying to bring that to the fore in, in the public school system. But, but let's also do so with this other legitimately historical, logical, and important part of human existence. Let's bring this also alongside of it and see if that doesn't make a difference. All right, guys, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for watching. If in any way this helped you, please make sure to comment. Don't forget to subscribe and then share this with others. We'll catch you next time. You can catch brand new episodes of Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman every Monday and weekly bonus episodes to keep you thinking throughout the week. But you have to subscribe and click the bell to be notified when new episodes drop. If you enjoy this content, make sure to like this video and share it with friends.